0: Um, welcome to everyone to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. I'm pastor here. Um, we're going to be continuing, continuing on in our series, uh, Colony. We've been in this series for several months and we've been talking about what does it mean to be the people of God in the 21st century? What does it mean to be God's faithful presence wherever we go? Uh, and to deal with the world the way that it actually is today, that the people of God are honest uh, in seeing things the way that they truly are. Um, Yet it's the questions that we ask and the way that we've been specifically equipped to change the way that things are for the sake of God's kingdom. And so tonight, um, my sermon is entitled, One on Earth is the Church. And what I want us to really focus on tonight is, what, is it, what does it mean for us to, to be the church? Not just what is the church's purpose, because I think that's what we've been talking about quite a bit through this series. What exactly is the purpose of the church? What are the things that we're called to do? But I want to talk about specifically why we are crafted the way we are and our attitudes as individuals when we come together to be the church. I remember having a conversation with my father one time, and he said, Christianity began in Palestine as a fellowship, and then it moved to Greece And it became a philosophy. And then it moved to Rome, and it became an institution. And then it moved to Europe, and it became a culture. And then it moved to America, where it became a business. And that's where we find ourselves. You know, we have such a fleeting relationship with church today. I think for a lot of people, church is optional at best, and and a nuisance. um, And even can be a, a, a severe point of pain that so many of us have experienced disappointment because church has been presented to us something other than what God intended for it to be. I don't know if how many of you were involved in the Christian hardcore scene a decade ago. Maybe just me and Jake Bigby. Uh, but there used to be these bands that would go around and they'd say, don't go to church, be the church. Stop stop going to church, start being the church. And the sentiment was so good, but there was something in it that just didn't quite feel right. I think a lot of times we have that same feeling like we're just so done with the organization we're so done with the structure and the building because it's disappointed us and we're we have that heart to authentically be the kind of people that God's calling us to be but we don't really know what to do with that energy and so so often we just leave we just walk away and it's interesting because this isn't a new phenomenon um, even in the 300s, the St. Augustine of Hippo, who gave us so much of our modern theology, said, the church is a whore, but she's also my mother. And we live in that tension even today, that the church is the unfaithful bride of Christ, that she's also our mother. She's nurtured us. She's handed us our tradition. She's handed us our understanding. She's brought us into a family, and she's blessed us. And we have to learn how to live in that tension well to see the bride of Christ, to see our mother shine with the radiance that she's always been destined for. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna jump into this tonight. So Heavenly Father, everything that we're bringing into this room, Lord, all of our pain, all of our disappointment, all of the places where we've been let down by this idea of church, Lord, we bring all of those things to you right now and we lay them at your feet. We don't make excuses for them, Lord. We don't feel ashamed for those things. We just lay them out in front of you, Lord. We bring in all of our personal histories with this idea of church, the good and the bad, the true and the false. And we lay those things before you, Lord. And I just invite you, Father, send your spirit to work in and through us tonight that you would even bring some healing when we begin to see what it means for us to be part of the church to be part of the solution and to be part of your family. Lord, I pray that we would walk out of this place tonight celebrating the gift that church is for us because you've called us here to be family. You've called us here to be home. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so this is where I want us to kind of focus tonight in terms of this series that we've been doing. The colony is the place where God is forming a family. The colony is the place where God is forming a family. Either many of you were catching Pokemon last week or you were actually taking notes when Cole was preaching and I love that. I highly encourage you. This is me putting on my professor cap tonight. So take notes and, um, and we'll talk about it. You can come and you can ask me questions about anything that I say tonight. So I highly encourage you to that. But the colony is the place where God is forming a family. This is so important for us to understand that our starting point when we begin to talk about church is not me, but we. And so I want us to look at a couple quick passages from Romans to understand a very key theological concept that often gets misconstrued to us. And to show how at the the core of what God's story is, it's all about him forming a family. And so we're going to be looking at Romans 4, and then we're going to be jumping back into Romans 3. And we're looking at this idea, sometimes it's referred to as justification, and sometimes it's referred to as righteousness. And as we step into these passages, the kind of passages that you start reading and all of a sudden you you just kind of knock out because it's like by grace upon faith and the thing and and you're like, oh my goodness, what's going on? But it's so important that we understand these words because this is part of our heritage. And I want to define justification and righteousness for you tonight like this. You are now covenant members of God's family. That's it. That's what justification and righteousness mean. You're now members of God's family. N.T. Wright talks about it that sometimes we try to stretch justification and righteousness over the whole of the Christian experience, and it doesn't really do its service, but we recognize that it's like the steering wheel of a car. It's an incredibly important part of the car, but it's not the whole car. You wouldn't call the whole car the steering wheel. That's what justification is like for us. It's so key and important to us understanding what God's doing, but it doesn't necessarily fit the whole thing, but it's a great starting point. So we begin in Romans chapter 4, and we read this, as Paul's talking about justification. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is before there's a law, before Moses has come on the scene, before Israel has been crafted as a nation and God's people. God shows up to Abraham, a a nomad, and he says, "Abram, if you believe me, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And not only am I going to make a nation and a family out of you, but I'm going to use that nation, that family, to bless all other nations and to draw all people into my family. And you know what Abraham said? He said, okay, okay. And that's what it means here. Abraham believed God. Abraham believed that God was going to build a a human family out of him, and it was credited to him as righteousness, So skipping down it says this, therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He's our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being the things that were not. And so we see Paul is crafting this large story for a church that is very broken apart by this idea of who's in and who's out, and how do you have to behave in order to be part of church, these Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians. And he's saying, no, 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 God has formed one single family out of the story of Abraham. And then that's where we see the the heritage and the lineage is bringing us to Jesus, and that Jesus is actually the way by which God made this possible. Because the Jews couldn't keep up with all of the laws, and the Gentiles were never privy to being part of that process. And so God sends Jesus to open up the way to make that family come true in the seed of Abraham. And so when we jump back to Romans 3, we find that he says this, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. They sing everything that God laid down in the law through Moses and everything that was spoken through all of the prophets culminates in the character of who Jesus is. That Jesus is the vehicle through which God was going to make it possible to have a family. If you remember the story of Abraham, it's that his children were literally miraculous, that the years and the decades that went by, it seemed less and less likely that God was going to be able to craft a family out of Abraham and his wife Sarah but he was able to do it through the miraculous work. And so we see that same thing in Jesus. It seemed greater and greater impossibility that God could possibly form a single human family out of all of the separate tribes and the hierarchies and the ranking systems that we have in mankind. Yet he performs that miracle through Christ Jesus. And this is fascinating, this next line. This righteousness is given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now if you've ever read that line in Romans 3, you might read that it says this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. But even even as we're learning more and more about how to translate scriptures, there's a lot of scholars today who are saying it's not so much about us having faith in Christ, it's about the faithfulness of Christ to be who God called him to be that actually qualifies us as righteous. You see, for us as Protestants, we work very hard to prove that we're saved by faith, not works. Do you understand that? We work really, really hard and we really, really try and we really put in our work ethic and trying to <clears throat> obey all of the rules so that we can prove that we're not saved by works. It's kind of this irony. And I think it's a lot of times because we hear something like this. Oh, it's if we have faith in Jesus, then we're righteous. So I gotta try really, really hard and I gotta believe everything that I can about Jesus and intellectually check off all the boxes and then I'm righteous. You see, we're stepping right back into that self righteousness, that it's about something that I do, it's the way that I perform that qualifies me to be part of God's family. But you see, if it's actually the faithfulness of Christ that makes us righteous, then it's Jesus doing what Jesus was crafted to do that opens up the way for us to be part of God's family. And it has nothing to do with how we perform It has nothing to do with us earning it. It has nothing to do with us trying to meet some sort of a standard. We are made part of God's family because of the sacrifice of Christ. And so Paul goes on, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And so none of us were capable of of meeting the standard. Jews weren't capable of meeting the standard of living according to the law perfectly. And Gentiles weren't um, able to live to the standard that they didn't even know they were being held to. And so it's Christ coming in and changing the entire format of how we connect with God. That now there is no Jew nor Greek. Because we all fall short. Yet we all find redemption in the healing work of Jesus. And that salvation that's available for all of us. It's a great ringtone right there. And so Jesus was the way that God made true on his promise. We did a series quite a while ago called Abide, and we talked about these three incredibly important ideas, and they're some of the foundation of my own personal theology. We talked about intimacy, identity, and purpose. That it's through our intimacy with God, our relationship with him, our daily communion with him, that we learn to inhabit our identities. I think if I told you that you were sons and daughters of the living God, probably, that's probably not news to you. You've probably heard that somewhere. But it's only intimacy with God that teaches you how to, to abide in that truth, to seek out what does it actually mean to be his son, to be his daughter. And as we learn to abide deeper in who God has called us to be as his children and as his image bearers, it gives rise naturally to our divine purpose that God has crafted each of us to go out into the world and to reflect his image, to call home all of his lost children. And he's equipped each of you with different gifts and different passions to be able to accomplish that. And we find so much of that is rooted in this idea of justification, that we are members of God's family, you are his sons and his daughters, not because you're trying to earn it, but because you already are it, because of what God has done through Christ Jesus. And so church is where we tell God's story in such a way as it interprets who we are. Church is the place that we come together and through word and through deed, we continue to tell God's story over and over and over again until it begins to interpret who we are. You see, so often we invert it. We think that we're supposed to interpret scripture, which is really to say we're, we're supposed to interpret God. We're supposed to determine what Jesus is like. And so we bring in all of our worldly perspectives and all of our broken lenses, and we try to sit there and understand what this thing is as individuals. But it's actually that other way around, that it's God's story that interprets our lives. It's God's story, it's what God has done through Jesus that tells us who we are. And as we come together and we share testimony and we pour over the scripture and we sing songs together and we pray over each other and as we encourage one another, as we come to the Lord's table and we participate in communion, all of these different parts of the ecosystem of church are telling us the story of God in a slightly different way. That piece by piece it continues to transform us to become ever more in the likeness of Jesus. And I think some of those things that we bring in with us when we begin to think that it's us interpreting scripture, it's us interpreting church, comes out of the culture that we live in. That a lot of times our society, the biggest vices that we find are isolationism and consumerism. Because we're given a a gospel in the world that talks to us about being an individual and a gospel in the world that tells us about freedom. I even heard recently that one of the presidential candidates said that every law that's passed decreases your freedom. And I think that's such a sad definition of what freedom actually is. Because in that mindset, freedom means I have to keep all of my options open. And the more that there's parameters and definition put on me, then the less free that I am. You understand? But that's a trap. Because what does that do? It makes us want to live a life where we have all of our options open all of the time and we can never commit to anything because to say yes to one thing is to say no to a thousand other things. This is why we don't get married. I'm preaching myself here, baby. There's like a little rear view mirror right here. Heck yeah, Okay. But we have this illusory illusory idea of what freedom is that says, I have to keep all of my options open, and I can't say yes to any kind of definition or parameter, because then in some way, I'm going to be less free. And what that does is it makes it all about me as an individual, which leads me into this place of isolation, because the, the very thing that my soul wants is connection. My soul wants to be defined. My soul actually comes into agreement with who God says that I am. Every single day, it's my flesh that has a really hard time coming into alignment with that. But you see, our souls, our spirits want that intimate connection because that's what we've been crafted for. But the culture around us sells us individualism, which leads us to isolation. And it sells us freedom, which is really to turn us into consumers. And the biggest vices of modern society, and the problem is that the modern church, instead of being the bastion of heaven, instead of being the the little colony or the culture of heaven that's placed in a foreign land and becomes this shining example to the world around it, the American church so often has tried to be quote-unquote relevant to culture, to find its place in culture. But what we've done so often is we've allowed culture to define the conversation, and we try to find our place in it. I don't know if any of you went to a youth group where you had that poster on the wall, and it was like, do you like this secular band? Well, you'll love this other Christian band that is actually just a way worse version of that band. Anybody like that? I I had a band a decade ago, and one of the funniest reviews ever was, it's like Coldplay, but without any of the catchy hooks, and the songs are way too long. And I was like... Okay, I will never have a music career, I guess, because I'm always going to be referred to something else. But that's so often how church culture works, is we only try to find our place in the conversation that culture is having. And the irony is the more that we ask those questions of how can we be relevant to what's going on in culture, it actually makes us more irrelevant. Because we really have nothing to offer the self-determined, self-motivated postmodern person. If you, want to, if you just want to like, live a better life, there's other people that are telling you how to do that far better than we could. If you like music, there's people that are doing way better music than we can do. But we've got to tell a different story. Church's responsibility is not to be the second-hand version of whatever you can buy in American culture. But the interesting thing is that these are not new issues within the church. They actually go back to the very beginning. In the first century, all of these letters that Paul is writing are continuing on conversations with churches that were taking the gifts of God and the language of God and and the things of God, but were still holding them in a very worldly way and and, and not really understanding what they were truly for. So most of the writings of Paul are actually corrections to earlier discussions. But what he's doing is he's setting up the church to say, you're not just contributing to culture. You are the antidote for the way that culture thinks and works and operates. You're the antidote, not the poison. And so over the past several weeks, I've spent time in prayer and said, Lord, what do we need in the modern capital C church to really become who you've intended for us to be? What does it really look like for us to be the bride of Christ? What does it really look like for us to be the body? What does it look like for us to be the shining city on the hill that calls people in to yourself? And so tonight, I've identified five movements that I think that the modern church needs to take in order to step into her divine role. And I'm going to go through these things rather quickly. But I hope that what you'll do this week is you'll go back and begin to look at the letters of Paul and begin to identify the the cultural misappropriation that had happened within the church. Where these different churches were hearing outside influence and it was making them go astray. And Paul's actually calling them back to being faithful. And I use this language of movements because I don't think it's merely us moving from one level to the next level. But it's actually us being on this journey and more and more as we press into God, as we receive the faithfulness of Christ and we respond with faithfulness, we become day by day a more accurate version of what it really means for us to be the colony of God. So we're gonna look at five different movements. And as we're going through this, yes, I want you to think about our church. I don't think that we're exempt from any of these things. I want you to think about where you've come from some of your church experiences in the past. And I want you to think about the American church overall. But we're stepping into these things because we actually want to pray for the church to be restored. Because we want to see revival come to the church where she begins to really wake up to who she is. Because the church in this country is a sleeping giant who's been wooed to sleep by the culture around it. And let's begin. The first one is this. Moving from a cult of personality to the centrality of Christ. A lot of times we live in a culture that is obsessed with celebrity. We want to look at one person as being the person who has the answers or the one person who is the leader. And often times when we, when we deify our leaders or we deify a movement or a particular expression of church, it leads us to set them up as some sort of an idol in our lives. And it also leads us right back into the tribalistic mindset that we've talked about time and again. Look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul spends about, oh, half a chapter, like, commending this church and saying how much he loves them. And he goes, okay. And he just whips out the list. He's like, let's go down these things one at a time. And the very first thing he talks about is this kind of celebrity-minded Christianity. So he says this in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning of verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas, which is also Peter. And still another says, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And we'd even read that and we'd say the person person that says, I follow Christ, they're the right one, but this is the person that goes, "Um, yeah, I follow Jesus, Uh, not those other ones. But so what Paul is saying is like Paul came in and he established this church, and there's another guy going around, and his name is Apollos, and he's a wonderful guy, and he comes in and he encourages churches that already exist. We don't know much about Apollos, he may have written the book of Hebrews, but he just seems like he was a really energetic and faithful apostle. And then Cephas, or Peter, of course, being um, the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, you know, being one of Jesus' disciples, had this special authority, and we have some of his writings But this church, just like we are in the modern era, is so obsessed with celebrity that we begin to pick and choose the leaders that we think are worth more than other leaders. And it leads us into that tribalism where we begin to fight and bicker. Instead of Paul and Apollos and Cephas, you could begin to add in maybe it's leaders within this church. Maybe it's leaders that we listen to their podcasts or whatever it might be watching them on television. We say, oh, that's the person, that's my person. And we begin to form a tribal identity around some sort of earthly human leader within the church. But Paul comes back to this conversation in chapter two and he says, who is Paul? Who's Apollos? We're just workers in the vineyard. He says, you know, I came in and I planted the seed and Apollos came along and watered it, but it's God's garden. So let's put aside all of this bickering about who follows whom and realize that it's Christ who is the cornerstone. It's God's garden. You see, when we deify our leaders or we deify specific movements of church and say that's really the truth as expense of all of the others, it leads us into a couple of very dire situations. First of all, when we idolize our leaders, it means that we need our leaders to believe on our behalf. We need the Our leaders to be the kind of Christians that we don't have the time or the discipline to be. And so we expect them to be perfect. And then we immediately crucify them when they fall. Consider over the past several years how many megachurch pastors we've seen in the news that something came out, and so much of it is because of the pressure that they have felt in their churches to be perfect, to be the leader who has all of the answers. And so often, secret sin for a pastor, and I know this firsthand comes from you need something on the side, just a little valve release that just kind of lets you not fall into that, to not be defined by the title. But then as soon as any leader shows any kind of crack, we crucify them quickly because that's what we do to all of our messiahs, but especially the fake ones. And I frequently struggle with that kind of pressure of needing to be the leader that has all of the answers, of needing to be the one that's the most disciplined or knows the most about the Bible or whatever it might be. And it leads me into this place where I become a parody of myself. Because if I'm not allowed to be myself before you before long, I'm not allowed to be myself before myself. And then I can't be myself before God. And I start to fall into that trap. It's the same reason why we love to destroy celebrities in our culture. So we idolize our leaders And then we crucify them when they fall short. Because when they sin, it reminds us of our own sin. And when they fall, it reminds us that maybe we're not doing so well. And we give them thumbs up when everything's perfect, but then we crucify them on the other side. And the second thing that it leads us to when we deify our leaders is we think that uniformity is the same thing as unity. We think that if we all talk the same and we all think the same, then our community will be safer, will be more productive. But I'm telling you, that robs us of the image of God. If we all begin to look exactly the same and we all talk exactly the same because we're allowing one person and their journey with God to define all of the rest of us, it robs us of the fullness of the image of God when we all come together. This is why so often Paul uses the language of us being a body, And some of us are hands, and some of us are eyes, and some of us are toenails, and and some of the parts that we don't think are very popular are actually really significant in the kingdom. And the pieces that are really obviously out there and out front, well, we don't need to give them any kind of extra honor. But We think that uniformity is the same thing as unity. But unity in Christ sees diversity as a gift rather than a liability in our language, in our expressions of the spiritual gifts, in our personal journeys, the different kinds of churches you and I have come from, So often in the Bible studies that I've been leading, we just pause and say, what did you hear growing up? Where did you come from? What were the things that have really stuck with you? What are the things that maybe you've kind of grown out of and you've evolved from? And that's what we're called to be as church because we see that that diversity that we have when we're unified in Christ actually becomes a gift to us and it becomes a strength. It's like that final scene in Newsies when all of the different gangs come together from the five boroughs to bring down... um, Beardy, what's his name? Pulitzer, right? Hearst, whatever. I haven't seen that in forever. But it's like that scene in Newsies. Like, yeah, they're all from these different boroughs and they have these different expressions of what it means to be a Newsie, but when they come together, they have this really powerful image of being united. And it's because of their diversity that they're able to accomplish so much. A couple of weeks ago, Lander talked to us about how Jesus is the standard that we were made to look at. And every one of our leaders, and I'm speaking specifically to us as a church, every single one of our leaders carries some reflection, some reflection of what God is like, but not all of it. And when you and I come into this room and we greet each other during community time and we go out to eat after this, each of us carries some reflection of the image of God, but not the entire thing. And so church is the place that we come together, and the more that we gather, we celebrate the diversity we have because God is ever more present within that. So what does that look like, uh, that unity look like among believers? It brings me to my second movement, that we move from bringing a community of answers to a community of presence. This has been something that I've been very passionate about recently. I've talked to many of you about this. Several months ago, Cole and I were having a conversation. He said something that really stuck with me. He said, you know, I don't know that our church has grown in numbers because people would rather be told what to think instead of learning how to think. And I realized how true that is, that when we confuse unity with uniformity, then we start to translate this idea that safety and belonging means that we all agree on the same things. And so we put the pressure on our leaders to define everything. And before long, our churches have developed a whole new 95 theses. You have to believe all of these things, which is really to say you have to check off the boxes on all of these things, and then you get to be part of our church. And we feel that pressure as leaders so often that we have to have the answers that anybody that comes and there's something going on in the world, or what should we do, or what does this Bible verse mean, or why did we sing that in that song, or why didn't this happen, or why did that happen? We have to come up with the answer, because that's our job. Our job is to dole out answers. You see, and then before long, well, we have to all have the same, we have to agree on the same things, we have to believe in the exact same way. And if we can purge our community of any kind of ambiguity, If we can purge our community of any kind of disagreement or different perspectives, then we'll be pure, and then we'll be unified. I think it's nonsense. (laughs) You know, we rob ourselves of so much when we think that church is about uniformity, that it's about having all of the answers so that we don't have to think about anything ever again. You realize that we've been having the same conversation for 2,000 years, right? You know, any kind of conclusion that you or I have come to, there's not a question that we're able to ask that has not been asked in the past. And it's probably had some varying degrees of answer to it. And that's what church is. It's us contributing contributing to the conversation. And I think so much of the world, when it comes to this need to have answers in order to feel safe, in order to belong, comes from what we've picked up in the world, that the world conditions us to be passive consumers of products that if you use this kind of shampoo, then you're in. That's the answer, that's the right one. If you drive this kind of car, then you're in. That's the one, you gotta get this one, everybody's got that one, everybody's got this phone, or whatever it might be. And that's what's actually led us into this idea in the church, where we go church shopping, where we go around all these different churches, and we go, okay, what have you got to offer me? What are your programs? What are the things that I'm able to plug in? Are you able to give me everything that I need? And we treat churches the same way that we treat the shopping center, where we go in and we look at all the different kinds of bleach and all of the scents and mountain scent, whatever mountains smell like, and then we decide, (laughs) I'm going to try this bleach this week and this bleach next week, and then I'm going to find the bleach that makes me whole and complete and happy, and I found the answer, what a bleach I've found. But that church shopping comes from that product mentality, that church is a product that I consume in order to belong, in order to feel safe. And so churches feel this pressure to offer programs and products to keep people involved. And so instead of being the answer to consumerism, we actually just reinforce consumerism by saying, yes, we're supposed to give you what you need. And if we don't give you what you need, then you're not gonna give us what we need and and, and we're gonna fall apart. And we could so easily fall into that. But our job as the church is to challenge consumerism to say to people, hey, guess what? You're not a consumer of products. You don't find happiness in the things that you own. You don't find happiness in being able to participate in some program. It's about relationship with God church is the incubator for people finding their calling and then acting as the rallying point for others to come together and to say, let's go and let's do. And this has been so central to who we are as a community that we don't want to be a programmatic church that when someone says, I think we need to have this kind of program, say, okay, yes, let's do that. But rather say, what's the Lord putting on your heart? Where's he leading you? How's he gifted you? And then for someone to stand up and to say, I have this real passion for working with with, with underprivileged children. Say, okay, let's go, let's do it. And we're not gonna turn into a program. We're not gonna be the ones that need to run it so that you can just be a passive participator. But you're actually learning how to listen to the voice of God, to be obedient to the call he's placed on your life, to cultivate with discipline the kind of gifts and passions he's given you, and then you become the lightning rod for action within the church community, and we move from being the pro- programmatic we to the organic we, That for us, safety and belonging are found in presence to one another. It's not about having all of the right answers, but it's being present to one another. That safety and belonging are found when we come together and we create a space where we're able to ask questions, where we're able to share our hearts, (coughs) where we're able to express our doubts and our fears. And that doesn't discount us from community. But it's actually the invitation for us to be drawn deeper in to comfort and to challenge one another to grow. There's a famous phrase that sometimes, again, we attribute to St. Augustine. It says, unity in the essentials, liberty in the non-essentials, and in all things, charity. Another way to say it is we major on the majors and we minor on the minors. That we have these central tenets of what it means to be a Christian, but then everything else is us contributing to a 2,000-year-old conversation and sharing our personal journeys and what we've discovered and what we've encountered along the way. And when we're less threatened by the other person being different from us, we're actually better positioned to open up our hearts to them and perhaps learn from their journey and from their experience. And there can only be blessing that comes out of that. So much of the way that we see Paul writing, especially in Romans 14, is encouraging the conversation to say, "Some people are going to worship this way, and some people are going to worship that way. Some people are going to eat meat and some people aren't going to eat meat. Some people one day's holy, some people every day's holy. It's less about what you do, and it's about your heart posture and why you even do that. And that we get to come together in this space and throughout the week in community. And we get to comfort one another and challenge one another and listen to each other, and in doing so, we grow. But everybody gets to come to the table and to share their journey as the gift that it is. And we celebrate our differences because it might just be the place that we meet God in a very new way. Because maybe the language that we've been using, maybe the expression we've been using is beginning to show its wear and tear. And we need new ways to talk about God. And we need new ways to experience God. so number three is going to be more about direction for the church our forward momentum it's this we have to move from branding to vision we have to move from branding to vision that we we live in an era where the temptation is for us to sell hype to people in order to get them to pay attention because we have such short attention spans but so often what happens there is that we, we're only trying to keep people's attention with the new and the shiny. We begin to lose sight of the deeper truths and the things that we actually believe as Christians. There's a very similar issue in the church in Colossae. Paul writes this in um, Colossians chapter 2. He's talking about, he says, don't be bound to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. And what he's talking about there is the synagogue. He's saying, don't get caught up again in all of the rules and the regulations, what we might call legalism." But then he goes on to talk about another end of that spectrum, another extreme. And he says this very odd uh, language here. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God continues to cause it to grow. So you can imagine that there's that natural temptation for us as human beings to go to legalism. Don't tell me how to think. Don't teach me how to think. Just tell me what to think so that I know that I can belong. But there can be that other temptation on the other side here, what Paul's identifying, that there were these certain sects of Christianity that were so over-spiritualizing everything. There was this group called Montanism in the second century, and this guy came along and said, Guess what? I'm the Holy Spirit. I'm here. I did it, you guys. And he'd lead everybody out into the desert, and they'd fast for like two or three days, and they'd work themselves up, and then they'd prophesy. Um, but it was they were just babbling on and on and on, and there was causing all of this division and this confusion. Even from the beginning, they were dealing with those natural extremes that we have as human beings, that either we're so legalistically minded that we have no heart or spirit in our worship and in our process, or it becomes so spiritual that we have nothing grounding us or mooring us or giving us direction. And that's what happens so often today in modern church, that we feel the need to give the next, the new, the shiny, the more exciting thing in order to keep people occupied. One of the spiritual directors in Nashville, Ian Morgan Cron, talked about it, how it's, we become addicted to worship. We go to worship service and we get 3,000 cc's of worship. And that's good for about a month and then we need to come back and now we need 3,500 cc's of worship. And in my i am I preaching to you? You know, and we start to build up this tolerance and then after a long we need a little bit more. And you need to give me a little bit more zazz and a little bit more wow to keep my attention. Because the foundations of the faith aren't enough for me. I love this quote by the designer, Yves Saint Laurent. He said, fashions fade, but style is eternal. I remember asking a friend of mine that works in the industry in in, uh, Atlanta about what that means, and fashion changes every six months, hence why none of us are wearing MC Hammer jam pants in 2016. They'll probably come back, I don't know. I mean, I don't predict such things. But fashion changes every six months that we have the new thing that everybody's gonna rush into, and then it just becomes, becomes normal and it loses it's zazz. It loses its excitement. And we've got, somebody else has to step in and give us the new exciting. And he goes on, he says, I always believed that style was more important than fashion. They are rare, those who imp- impose their style while fashion makers are so numerous. Can anybody tell me what's the number one article of clothing that every man in here should own? Underwear. White Underwear. <laughs> yes. Like a nice, fitted blue Oxford. You put it with everything. And by the way, men, the way that you're to dress is to be the best thing that your significant other puts on that day. So don't take away from her. Contribute to her. That's, those fashion tips, those are for free. Those are coming from elsewhere. But real style, real style doesn't change every six months. Real style is good, and it's good in 2016 as it was in 1966. Because it looks good. And I think that can give us such a beautiful trajectory for what it means for us to have vision in our church. A lot of times we say, Well, what's the vision? I don't know what the vision is. And even early on coming to this church, I was really confused by that conversation because the tradition that I had grown up in, the vision for the church has been the same thing for 2,000 years love God, and love others. That's the vision of the church. And we're blessed because we can spend different seasons exploring certain avenues. And, and, you know, like last year, we took 40 weeks and looked at just the spiritual gifts, and it was phenomenal. But we're only doing that in the service of the vision, because it's always been the same kind of vision. Branding has its place, but it's not a replacement for having that kind of vision, Because all that branding does if we chase branding is it reinforces consumerism and we just skim along the surface of what church could actually be and we miss it and then we walk away because it never gave us what we really wanted. And that brings me to the fourth, how are we doing? Okay, we're doing all right. This is the fourth one. Moving from a me-based faith to the great tradition. So I want to recall that in the beginning I'd said freedom is your ability to define yourself. That's what we're often sold from American culture, that freedom is your ability to define yourself and in doing so to cast off any of the other definitions that people would put on you. But that's the place where individualism leads us to isolation. And I think a lot of times the way that we engage in church is that we come into church as an individual and we stand during worship as an individual and then maybe we give of our tithes and offerings as an individual and we listen to a sermon as an individual and then we worship and then we go home. And we've had very little awareness of our connectedness to the people around us. And we attend all of these things as an individual. I've used the analogy before that so much of modern church ends up being a TED Talk sandwiched between two U2 concerts. But here's the thing, when we're so hyper-individual, when we're so obsessed with our individuality, it disconnects us from the larger story and the place that God is taking us. Fetishizing personal salvation renders most of the Bible unintelligible and the church useless. Someone asked me earlier, what does fetish mean? Fetish is when you idolize something to the point that everything else loses its meaning, when you become obsessive when we obsess about our personal salvation is the only reason that we participate in church. And then we come into the Bible and we're like, most of this Bible doesn't apply to me. This has nothing to do with me. We skip all that stuff about Israel and we skip you know, the first several chapters. And we just look for the things that make us feel better. We just look for the little phrases that are gonna help us to become better people and we miss out on the story of God. And in doing so, it renders church pretty useless. That if it's just about my personal betterment and my personal healing and me living a better life, I don't need the rest of you to do that. But if we recognize that it's actually about righteousness, is that God is crafting a family out of the human species, then I'm intimately connected to everyone in here. In the 20th century, um, one of the greatest theologians, Karl Barth, was asked, when were you saved? And he looked at this person very quizzically and he said, 33 A.D., you see, no, he had no time for this idea of personal salvation that we so often talk about, inviting Jesus into your heart now, because for him, he was saved like the rest of humanity and the rest of the universe was when Jesus died and was resurrected. That's when the universe was saved. Now, your personal salvation is tremendously important, but in the context of that larger story, That as God encounters you, as Jesus transforms you, you're drawn up into that beautiful story. We see in Hebrews chapter 11 that the writer tells us all of these different stories of the heroes of the faith. And then in in Hebrews 12, he says, now that we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, it's time for us to participate. It's time for us to carry the story forward. And so we're intimately connected and we're contributing to the conversation that each of us, our personal salvation, means so much but in the context of the whole as God weaves us together as a family. You know, over the past several weeks, we've been starting up this church library that we're going to have in that room back there. And I want to say thank you to all of you who have donated books so far. And I encourage more of you, bring in the books. And again, they're the books that mean a lot to you, not the ones that are taking up space underneath your bed, okay? <laughs> Just a little gentle reminder there. But it's amazing seeing all of these books come in and the ones that matter to you. And it, it's, I've been cataloging all of you, and I swear this is true. In our church library, we're going to have John Piper sitting next to Derek Prince, sitting next to Pope Francis. That's the kind of church that I want us to be. That's who I want us to be, to go, if it is true and it is from God, by golly, we are going to examine it and we're going to draw it into the conversation because that's where we get to stand in history, that we don't have to be bound in these little tribes. We don't have to fall into the pretense that we're the best and the brightest and we're the ones that have got it all together and everybody else for the past 1900 years has kind of been kidding themselves, but we get to stand on the shoulders of giants And we get to draw in all of the amazing wisdom of what God has spoken through the ages to be part of that church, universal and historical, and to contribute to that conversation. I hope that someday we're putting the book that you write on that shelf. If your last name starts with a P. in Piper, Prince, and Pope. (laughs) Priests, maybe. But we get to contribute to that conversation. And my final one, behaving to becoming, behaving to becoming. This is something that I've been thinking about for a long time. The modern church often operates out of this behave, believe, belong mentality. That when you behave, when you act the way that we tell you you're supposed to act, when you start using all of our language and and doing all of the actions the way that we do and behaving yourself within our community, And then you have to believe all the things that we do, which really means you need to intellectually affirm the following 95 theses, and then you get to be part of our church, and that's how you belong. But what we actually find in the historical church, and even beforehand in Judaism, is a very different behavior. Instead of behave and then believe and then belong, we actually find belong and believe and become. That if you're here, you belong. You belong. And as you belong to the community, and you contribute your journey, and you listen to the journey of others, you begin to believe something, not because you intellectually affirm it, but because you're actually being transformed by it. And as you become, you learn to believe something, eventually you become something. You become part of the body of Christ. And I think that when we fall into that temptation of the behave, believe, belong mentality, we don't particularly value people. We just want to replicate ourselves. But we make it about belonging. And as we belong, we all believe. And as we all believe, we all become something. There's that tremendous value that we have for people that leads us into a transformative encounter with Jesus over time. I think it's actually much easier to change someone's behavior than it is to lead them into a living encounter with God because we have to trust that God's going to do what God said he's going to do. But that's where we find ourselves as family, bound by covenant, the covenant that God has made with mankind, not by our personal preferences. And that's the kind of church that begins to offer grace up front and offering it as the gift to the world that it truly is, that all who come in here we expect they are going to live into a real encounter with Jesus that's going to transform them and bring them into their true identities. And so the heart of church is this profound yet simple truth. We know and are known by God and by others. Garrett texted me yesterday and said that over the past several days, um, he had been encountering people that were kind of struggling through some spiritual exhaustion. And I think a lot of spiritual exhaustion comes from when our, either our perspective on church is misaligned or where the church itself is misaligned. And he'd been praying for people to experience spiritual refreshment. And so that's what I want us to focus on tonight. So I wanna invite you to stand with me. And if I could have all of our home church leaders and some of our ministry leaders and our elders kind of go to that back space, we're gonna just create um, a space and a time. If you're in here and you're, you're feeling spiritual exhaustion You're kind of feeling like you're at the end of the rope when it comes to church. We want to lay hands and pray over you for spiritual refreshment. So everyone, I want you to close your eyes and put your hands out in front of you. I'm going to read over us a prayer by George Macleod, who's a, a Scottish Presbyterian. And we're going to worship together as one body that we worship one Lord, that we have one Christ and one Spirit and to celebrate the tremendous diversity that we have in here. And if during worship you want someone to lay hands on you, please, by all means go to the back. And So let us pray. This is called a chaos of uncalculating love. Lord, it was your custom to go to the temple, to the noisome temple, sometimes to the scandalized temple, listening to the mumbo-jumbo, but it was your custom to go. Give us grace in our changing day to stand by the temple that is the present church, the noisome temple, the sometimes scandalized temple that is the present-day church, listening sometimes to what again seems like mumbo-jumbo. Make it our custom to go till the new outline of your body for our day becomes visible in our midst. Lord, we give you permission to move freely here tonight, Lord. Bring your healing, bring your spirit of refreshment, bind us together in your love that we celebrate our place in your larger story as you weave together your family out of the human species.